0: If anyone is listening to the recording, it might be a little shorter today because I got asked a couple good questions. I started talking about them. Okay. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well pleasing unto thee. Without the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ, our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine unoriginate Father, and then all holy and good and life-giving spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is Thank you. Okay. voice recorder here. I'm trying to be good. I know I don't think that these <laughs> sessions are like are worth going back and listening to. Um, I think it's better to be here, but for some people who are not able to make it. It helps them keep on track, and I've been posting them to our website for, for anyone who would like to go back and listen again to things that we've talked about, or who misses this session. You, know, you can go back and read this.
1: Uh, and okay. Oh, what are we gonna do?
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Last time we talked about monasticism, Anosh, have you decided to become a monk now? Maybe. No? Okay. Nice. I told everyone that uh, it's a calling as some people have and everyone who's not married yet should consider that calling in their life as an option. And the week before that I went through everything that I carry in my, in my bag and uh Showed you just kind of all the, my little set of tools that I carry around with me, different books and things that I that I use in my ministry, and uh, that's all recorded for, from previous sessions. So today we're going to talk about the Lord's return, and one of the things that's interesting about this is that in the West there have developed very Sophisticated, complicated, and sensationalized views of what the end times will be like. Um, you guys may remember like the Left Behind series. And, uh, and actually when I was in the music scene, I was in the kind of the, the alternative Christian music scene. I was in a band and I was in a touring band. And we played at churches, but we also played at different clubs. We played with secular bands, but we also played with Christian bands. We were a Christian band, but um, kind of flexible in you know who we played with. And, but I remember this, this one uh, band had their song was left behind based on those books. And I remember the guy singing dramatically, don't want to be left behind, left behind. And we're like, whoa, man, me neither. You know, um, but for us, it's just, you know, don't want to go to hell. You know, I mean, I want
1: to. <laughs>
0: because we don't, we don't have, we're not keliastic. We don't believe in the thousand-year reign. Um, and I guess if I were, I could sum up the entire lesson by just saying, um, we don't know the time when the Lord will come, and we don't need to know. But every day we're a day closer, and we pray that that when He comes t- to judge the living and the dead, that we will be ready. You know, that we will be prepared to be honest before His His dread judgment, His awesome, wonderful, but also fearful judgment seat. And that's basically the, our teaching <laughs> on it. Okay, we're not, um, we're not, you know, any kind of millennial. Uh, actually, I'll share with you that that uh, this idea of millennialism um, has been was actually condemned in the fourth century as a as a false teaching, and then it came back up in I think the the nineteenth century, nineteenth or twentieth century, um, with the whole talk about the rapture and everything. And we love things like that in the West because we want to be in and we want assurance that we're in. And I'm here to say, beloved in Christ, that again, Christ has already accomplished your salvation and the salvation of all of humanity, but it's up to you as to whether or not you will participate in that salvation that he has accomplished. And that will be finalized when we stand before him with that on that dread day of judgment. OK, that's 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 really important for us. We can't take anything for granted. And if you read the Bible, you will see there, there will be many who will be confused. You didn't feed. You didn't give me food. You didn't give me. When when did I not? You know, and the separation, you know, there are many teachings that Christ gives where he he says don't basically saying don't take your salvation for granted. And so we never do. We constantly telling you read the gospels and read the new testament and hear what they are actually saying not what you wish they were saying. And you will hear things like this like salvation is something that you continue to work out until that day of judgment. And we will have a particular Unique and particular judgment when each of us repose and there will be a final day of judgment, which will be the um, the end of all things and the beginning of the kingdom that is to come in time eternal. So, um, but let's get into it a little bit in more, a little more detail. So the Lord's return. So we do believe that the Lord will return to earth in glory, judging all men according to their deeds and establishing his kingdom, which shall have no end. And uh, we, we say that in the creed, very simply. So the church of Christ lives between the two comings of Christ. His first coming already took place. Okay, And people who believe in, I'll go on a little tiny tangent, people who believe in an intermediate kind of Thousand year reign, where certain the elect are going to be raptured and the rest are going to be left to suffer on on the earth. They actually believe something that's not biblical because if Christ came and there was a thousand year reign and then he came again, there would be three comings, which isn't biblical. We believe in two comings, as the as the Bible teaches. But some people, it's very interesting. I've had conversations with people who who really cling to certain ideas or certain doctrines. I remember talking to someone once who said, Father, uh, I've heard that you guys don't believe in the rapture. Yes, that's correct. Well, I really, it means a lot to me. The rapture means a lot to me. This person was being very honest. So the, the rapture really, it's something that has really meant a lot to me. And could I, could I become Orthodox and still believe in that? And the hard answer is that you can't, you know, you, you can't. Just, just like you can't be Orthodox and say, Mary isn't the mother of God. Or that the Eucharist isn't really the body and blood of Christ. It just seems like it. There are things that, we, that are essential beliefs. And there are things that we believe. And then there are also things that we can't believe as Orthodox Christians. That are inconsistent with, if we pay attention to the witness of the Scripture and the tradition. Which have a really great relationship, by the way. Scripture and tradition. Those two together are the foundation of our faith, always inspired by the grace of the Holy Spirit. People from a charismatic background, if they see us ex- externally, just on the basis of the structure of orthodoxy, it seems very rigid and not free. But if they understand how everything is actually based on God's revelation and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and if you start reading the lives of the saints and elders you see how wonderful and miraculous and charismatic the life in Christ in the church is like i said earlier it just it just keeps you from going too far in one direction confusing your personal experiences or emotional experiences with what might what might be genuine are they is it a genuine charismatic event or is it just something in my own head, you know. We were very careful about that, but anyway, um, that's why we need. Like Proto Deacon said, what do they call the the warp threads, warp, threads? warp or warp. warp? Okay, the warp threads the and the weft. Yeah. So, yeah, those are the, those are our warp threads. Um, so that is first. Advent or his first coming. The word Advent just means appearance or arrival or coming. The eternal son and word of God became man, taking upon himself the sins of the world and destroying the power of death. At his second advent, he shall come in his heavenly glory, ushering in the end of this age and inaugurating the life of the age to come. And since his first coming, between his first coming and the end of the age when he will return again to judge the living and the dead, St. Paul calls it the day of salvation. I love that. This is the day of salvation. And that's the day that we live in. When our Lord ascended to his father following his resurrection, two angels appeared to his disciples as they stood watching. And again, in, in the, the text here that we're drawing from, the King James Version is used, but I've, I've brought the, um, the New King James up because it's a little easier to, to read out loud. So they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in a like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So since that time, the church has faithfully awaited the return of her Lord. The spirit of expectation pervades all that the church does. We've already noted that chrismation is a pledge of our future inheritance. Why? Why? Because chrismation is the sealing, the the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit, and if you've read if you've read the epistles of Saint Paul, you know the the Holy Spirit is the, the earnest of the things to come, our identity in God's eternal kingdom. It's the pledge of our future inheritance. So we've also pointed out that the Eucharist is a participation both in Christ's first coming and in the great. Wedding banquet of the kingdom of, kingdom to come. In 1 Corinthians is, is written, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Even during the New Testament era, however, this expectation gave rise to strange speculations about the time and details of the Lord's return. Because we want to know, we want to know or to be able to claim to know what only God can know. Because we're insecure and we lack faith, and it makes us feel good to be able to say, "I know that He's going to come on January first, two thousand, to judge the living and the dead." Well, He came mystically; it didn't happen. So you know, we we but we want we want affirmations, we want knowledge, and we want affirmation, but. We want, in our own way, what only God can provide. And actually, the way that we come to peace with our, the reality of our own ignorance is by, one, constantly searching the scriptures, loving them, listening to the, what the church has to teach, taking time to just pray and be with God. If you spend time with God, I will tell you that worldly knowledge will become far less important to you You'll know what you need to know, when you need to know it. And, you know, and if, you, if you're going to succeed at anything worldly, it'll be temporary. Good job with a good income, that could change tomorrow. Your 401k could disappear, and who knows why. But your eternal inheritance cannot disappear. Unless you want it to. Because you want to know better than God. But there's a lot that we... In our insecurity, there's a lot that we do. And I actually see that a lot of these attempts at predicting the future you know, are either about seeking to control other people and influence them or to accommodate the illness resulting from our own insecurity that can only be healed by really trusting in God. That he knows. That he knows what I don't need to know. And if I need to know, he will let me know. And I won't even want to go around telling everyone, because I'll think, I'll be questioning my own judgment to begin with. (laughs) And what if I say it the wrong way or something like that? Um, But anyway, so if you've had any exposure to, you know, the study of early Christianity, you know that even in the early days, they thought that he was going to be coming again really soon. Really, really soon. And it became a little confusing when, you know, the apostles started dying off. And he hadn't returned because some of them thought that he was going to be returning in their own lifetime. So throughout the centuries, many have been led astray by these kinds of speculations, departing from the teaching of the apostles. This is especially true of our own time in which prophecy experts peddle their ideas on television and in popular books and magazines. It's necessary, therefore, that every Orthodox Christian understand the church's teaching concerning the second coming of Christ. The first thing to remember is that there are very few things that the church states unambiguously concerning the Lord's return. Do you understand that? Very few things that we state unambiguously. There's a lot that is veiled because it hasn't happened yet for for us. Persons who claim to know intimate details of the Lord's return are deluded. They are, and... And we can say we can say that. Now, when you're having a conversation with your friend who believes in the rapture, it's not quite nice to just tell them they're deluded. Bob, you're just deluded. You just need to convert to orthodoxy, and then you'll be okay. Like, that's not always the answer. You you seek to understand. Um, w- actually why they believe what they believe. If you want to have a, a, a true dialogue with someone, you can say, I disagree with you. Oh, yeah, or I'm, in the, I'm orthodox now, or I'm becoming orthodox. Or, um, and uh, we just don't feel the need to speculate about those kinds of things. OK, that's one thing. But if you want to go deeper in that dialogue, then you actually have to ask them, give them a chance to explore why they believe what they believe. And sometimes they'll say, not a lot of us are very self-aware these days. Say, so, well, that's just what we believe. And a lot of times we don't know where it came from. You know? Um, but it's worth exploring in a meaningful dialogue with someone who is really bound to something. Again, if they want to talk about it. Why? Why that's so important to them? As a priest, it's hard for me because not everyone wants to go there with me. They just kind of want to know what, what we believe. They want to tell me what they believe and whether or not those two things are have any level of compatibility. And sometimes if I tell them those things are incompatible, then they're out the door rather than being willing to take it any further. And then I, I pray that, that they will, if they want to come back and you know, <laughs> get disenchanted someday or you know, that they'll come back and explore uh, orthodoxy which has happened before. So it's, a, it's significant that the book of Revelation, Revelation, okay, not Revelations, by the way. <laughs> it's not a plur, plural. People say that all the time, but the, the Greek word is Apocalypsis, which just means um, a, a revelation or a, a unveiling, um, but is Revelation, is the only book of the New Testament that's not, it's not actually read during the church's services of the New Testament. Um, the fathers realized that Revelation is a very difficult book. And actually, if you study, if you study the, the way the canon of the Scripture, the, the New Testament came together, it took, a f- took several hundred years in the church before there was an agreement of what would constitute the New Testament. It's a really interesting study to do. Um, maybe we could do a, a study on that sometime. I haven't mentioned it yet, but we're going to start having spiritual discussion and teaching times twice, twice a month here um, on Thursday evenings. And we'll, we're, we'll sit down, I'll pick a topic, I'll have a reading or something that we do, and then we'll talk about it just, just for an hour, like 7.15 to 8.15. Because uh, I've realized we get a little bit of that here, but it's mostly me talking with the occasional question but i wanted to cultivate more of that in our community among people you know i've been i use the language of fluency i'd like people to develop the language of or the ability to fluently speak of the spiritual life and about what what we believe it's not just about me saying it with some level of confidence but i'd like you to 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 feel like this is who you are, too. So that's something we've needed for a long time, and I'm, I'm working on developing that. We've had Bible studies in the past and things like that, but I talked to a brother priest who'd been a priest for 40 years, and he has these teaching times. He does them every, every week, but I'm going to start with every other week because we have men's fellowship twice a month on Thursdays in the evening. Um, but uh, I'll just pick different topics. My emphasis will be the spiritual life on a lot of things. But if we want to talk about the origins of the Bible, it all ties in to the spiritual life. It all, it all does. So, But the, the book of Revelation is not read in the church's services because it's a difficult book. And I was going to say, oh, in the canonization of the scripture, it, barely, it actually barely made it. It barely made it um, into the canon of the New Testament because it's very hard to read and understand. So um, it's easily misinterpreted. So anyone wishing to know more about the Book of Revelation should really begin by by reading reading it along with some kind of commentary, Orthodox commentary. There's a Saint Andrew of Caesarea that was that has fairly recently been translated into English. Um,
1: I'll try to. I don't
0: know if I can spell it. Caesarea, How do you spell? S C E C A E. Yeah. Right. C uh, C E S A E R E A, and something like that. Um, but he has um, he has a commentary on Revelation, and. It's, it's translated in a series. It's translated by actually a Greek Orthodox woman. I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Jeannie Constantino. So she translated it. She's a priest's wife, Presbyteria, um, into English. And it's done by Catholic, Catholic University. University Press. Yeah. That's a really good series. That, they, have, they have great translations of the writings of the fathers. And, you know, it's not just for Roman Catholics. All, all different con- contributors, but they're the ones who publish it. So, um, so it's all right. It, um, it's, it's it's commentary on Revelation, and it's fairly it's not too huge either. Commentary on Revelation, and it's a Catholic University.
1: It's called the Fathers of the Church.
0: University of America Press. I have it on my shelf. There are there are a couple other ones that you might explore, like um, there's one by um, Archbishop of York. They mentioned it in this text, the Apocalypse in the Teaching of Ancient Christianity, and then there's there is a there's a five volume. I know you're g- getting excited. There's a five-volume set by... Um, I need a different board. Archimandrite. It's becoming the, the, the more kind of authoritative one. Um, Archimandrite. Metilineos. 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 Oh, man. Um, it's called yeah it's like I think it's called On Revelation On Revelation it's five volumes
1: M-I-T-I-L sorry about my messy my contact can just make me blurry and
0: it's by it's it's done by Zoe Press we had them in the bookstore but we sold out of them but Five volumes. So that's a way to go deep. Be an interesting book study to do. Um, that one is not mentioned in our in our book here. And they just released the the fifth volume, I think, within the last year or so. So, um, if you look up, I think it's just zoepress.org. dot org. You can find those volumes. You can buy buy them as a as a set or one at a time.
1: Well, I have a comment. Um, from my past life, I'm reading a commentary on Revelation right now written by a Reformed Protestant and his thesis is Revelation is a liturgy in the throne room. Mm-hmm. And what he does is he takes... Yeah,
0: he's thing. actually not wrong on that thesis.
1: Yeah, it's kind of weird. I thought, this guy's a Reformed Protestant he talks about liturgy all throughout the day. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh...
0: You know what's funny is that some deep thinkers in the Western world, they start making connections that they don't know what to do with. I've read that. There was a guy, there was a guy named um, Gordon Fee. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Gordon Fee, who wrote on the Holy Spirit. He was all about the Holy Spirit, but then the implication was the Holy Spirit doesn't just inspire the unique believer, but actually causes union among Christians and causes them to become the church, but he never could say what the church really is. He never, like he got like almost there, but not quite, you know, and it left you hanging every time because a lot of the things he said were really, really, really good. I remember reading him at one point in time thinking, yes, you're right, but what's the conclusion? Like he never brought it to the conclusion, which would be that the church is, real, you know, that's a def- that it's definite. That there's a living continuity by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Beginning with Christ and His apostles leading to the present. But um Yeah, liturgy. You know that can be a bad word in the in the West, unfortunately. Did I tell you the story about when I was when I had become Orthodox and I went and visited a Protestant friend and he in California in Somehow I got sucked into a prayer meeting in someone's living room. (laughs) It was so weird. It was this short little, they were going to meet for like half an hour or something, but in their pastor's living room. And uh, everyone went through. And anyway, the pastor starts praying. I pray against the spirit of liturgy, da, 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 da. And I went, he said lethargy. I just convinced myself. Okay, he just said lethargy, the spirit of lethargy, and uh, I let it go, you know, and and I just kind of sat there and listened. And then afterward, my friend and I went out. And my friend had been dabbling in orthodoxy, and has since become orthodox. Um, beautiful man. I wish he would move up here. He lives down in uh, in Central California, but uh, anyway, I said. Um, he said lethargy, right? Kind of jokingly, and he goes, "No, liturgy." He said liturgy, but because they don't understand. Um, I don't know if all of you. I know you did, but if if you had read that article that I that I sent out uh, about liturgy and non-liturgy this past week, I sent a link to in my notes from Father Jeremiah. I sent the first like paragraph or so, but there's a link to the full article on my website, and it's one of my favorite articles because it it shows that, that liturgy is not just some kind of like, I don't know, dead, like dry, empty path that you just go down mindlessly. Um, but it actually reveals life as created by God that we need to, we have to adjust and conform to and, and there's there's all there's freedom in it actually it's amazing anyway I would recommend that you read that article liturgy and non-liturgy I have a website I just grabbed the gained possession of the domain so it's watchfullove.com watchfullove.com and uh, I drew I actually I got I I've discovered that a long time ago, that combination of words, watchfulness and love, before I became Orthodox. But if you study the Orthodox Christian spiritual tradition and tradition of prayer, watchfulness or nepsis is something that comes up. Watchfulness as in vigilance or self-awareness. Watch, keep, watch and pray. For example, the Lord said to Peter and the apostles when he was up on the Mount of Olives. So I don't know. Gethsemane. Gethsemane, thank you. He's sang his prayer at Gethsemane. And they were falling asleep. And he told them to keep watching and pray. And that's become something thematic in the spiritual life. Um, because we've become far too passive these days. Watchful. And then, of course, love is everything. Love. Why? Because God is love. So... Um, that's why I've, I, I, my web, my email address was watchfullove at gmail.com, but now I have Jeremiah at watchfullove.com. I also have a St. Paul Orthodox one too, so you can reach me, either one. But if you go there, there's, I've been posting more articles and things, and um, I put, if I have notes from homilies or recordings, I put them up there too. Okay. So, um, You know, someone once said, a friend of mine who converted to orthodoxy, he said, if you're familiar at all with the book of Revelation, then you won't be totally surprised when you come to the orthodox church and see what's going on here. But also, if you're not reading it with a totally closed mind, (laughs) you know, that's another thing. We read the Bible a lot of times with an absolutely closed mind without wanting to hear what it actually is trying to say to us. We just want to hear what we would like to hear out of it. So that's something we have to be really careful about. So let's consider what the church affirms concerning the second coming of Christ and leave aside those things that that our Lord and his apostle passed over in silence. So first of all, the church affirms that Christ will physically return in glory. He will come again. It's in the creed. Okay. Although we cannot know the day or the hour, you you know, and that doesn't that doesn't need to be cause for anxiety. Huh, when's it gonna When's it gonna come? You know, it's like all oh, because you know you know why we get anxious about them. One of the reasons is we don't want to repent until we have to. But if we're living a life of repentance and totally trusting that we don't need to know what only God can know. Then we can actually breathe, slow down and breathe and uh, trust in him. So we don't need to know the day or the hour. Secondly, when our Lord returns, he will judge every man according to his works. Read the Bible. Um, It's there. And finally, the church confesses that Christ's kingdom shall have no end. So concerning his return in glory, our Lord warned in Mark 13, he said, Bring up the the King James version of it here. Um, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. How vain is 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 it for us then to speculate on the time of Christ's second coming? Unfortunately, many have made careers out of doing just that, and actually successful, lucrative careers in doing it. The Christians in Thessalonica were making predictions about Christ's return when St. Paul rebuked them in 2 Thessalonians 2. He said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So a great delusion you know, will take place. According to St. Paul, two events will pre- precede the second coming. First of all, there will be a general, general falling away, or apostasy from the truth. And again, what we don't know exactly. We, <laughs> that seems like that's been going on uh, all along, hasn't it? You know, um, Our Lord asked, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Mankind will become more sinful as the end of the age approaches and many will leave the church to follow their own desires. The second event is the revelation of the Antichrist. The word Antichrist literally means instead of Christ. The Antichrist will not present himself as an ugly malevolent being, but as a caring kind of savior. He and his minions will perform miracles and solve great social problems winning the allegiance of many Christians. But I will tell you, I've become convinced that that they will do it in such a way that that makes us think that we we don't really need God so much. It will will flatter us. It will make us feel good about ourselves in some way. And that's what we need to be careful of because we need to die to ourselves <laughs> and become nothing so that Christ can become everything in us. So that's something that the, the deception will it will be effective, no doubt. And it has been. I mean, this, this, you could say the spirit of antichrist has been at work all along. A lot of us have things that take the place of Christ in our life. Be pray, pray that God reveals those things to us. Um. So they will solve social problems and win the allegiance of many Christians. And in Matthew 24, it is said, that If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So only after he's won the allegiance of the world will the Antichrist reveal his true self. And the period of great tribulation shall begin. Here in Matthew 24 again. Then there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened.
1: So there's a teaching
0: popular among evangelical Protestants that asserts that Christians will be miraculously delivered from the tribulation and that only the, the quote, unsaved will suffer under the rule of the Antichrist. The idea that Christians will be raptured, that is taken up into heaven before the tribulation, is an invention of... So this is where I'm going to correct the author of our text here. He says it's an invention of the 19th century, although it did have a powerful resurgence by the teaching of um, Darby, if you've heard of Darby but um, in the 19th century. But no one, no one in the previous 800 years of Christianity ever came up with such a notion, except for the fact that when the Second Ecumenical Council met in 381, in condemning all the errors of the heretic Apollinarius. They also condemned his teaching of the thousand year reign of Christ and introduced into the very symbol of the faith at that, again, Second Ecumenical Council, and his kingdom will have no end. And it became no longer permissible at all for an Orthodox Christian to hold these opinions. So, you know, nothing new under the sun, really. The church and her councils have addressed virtually every heresy. Our Lord made it perfectly clear that the period of tribulation will be shortened precisely for the sake of the elect. And that is why we're told to watch and stand fast in the faith so that we will not be deceived. It's no accident that the rapture idea is often paired with the idea of a worldwide revival before the second coming. Thus, many Christians are expecting a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit with great miracles and mass conversions before the church is taken up to heaven. But we know from the divine scriptures, however, that this is the exact opposite of what will happen. There will, of course, be a great revival replete with signs and wonders. But as we just read, that will be the deception. It'll just be a little too easy (laughs) but we like easy (laughs) that's why we have to try to live the ascetical life now while things are still pretty pretty easy for us those who are expecting to be delivered before the advent of the Antichrist will be ill prepared to recognize him it's obvious that Satan himself is the author of the rapture myth it's part of the Antichrist's campaign of deception um because if you just presume that you'll be taken away, it's pretty comforting to feel them. I'm, I'm a follower of Christ, and therefore, I will just be, yeah, I'll just be raptured. I look forward to that. And then those poor wretches who are left, you know, who are not saved. Well, too bad for them. And never in the history of the Orthodox Church has there ever been that kind of smugness toward those who would fall into heresy. It's always been, or who who reject God. There's, a, there's an authority that, that rightly divides the word of the truth, truth from untruth, because that's the prerogative of the, of the church. But never with joy to anathematize or to, to condemn or separate someone or to say, you know, you, you're going to hell, buddy, because of that. Or to say, well, I'm going to be taken up. And since you don't believe, sorry for, you know, too bad. Have you read those books that are, maybe you should watch those Kirk Cameron movies. You know, maybe you'll finally convert. Um, I want you to, to know when I when I make comments like that, um, it's not, it, it is not, it's not to make fun of people, okay? Um, because the person who believes in this, again, may genuine, genuinely believe in it for some reason. And again, when you when you talk with someone about what they believe, you, you can only start a real dialogue with seeking understanding. Otherwise, you might as well just sit back and, I don't know, journal about how wrong or or go on facebook or something you know and write endlessly about how wrong other people are but it that's not an act of of love at all for your neighbor um and to speak the truth in love is only a gift given to someone who truly cares about the person with whom they're talking okay and there are, there there are times and there will be times and we need to pray really hard that That the church does become like a lighthouse, a source of light and guidance to those who are lost in the seas of life. And that we will know how to say what needs to be said when it needs to be said. But for now, for a lot of us, it's on a smaller scale. It's just being discerning in our speech to those people who are in our life, those individuals to whom God has given us we 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 live our life a lot of times as if we're just some kind of like walking billboard in a way very very impersonal like i i'm right and a lot of the people around me are wrong you know i believe in the right things they're so deceived and we that's in our conscious consciousness It's kind of in our psychology um but, but that's not a healthy way to, to live. Um, the, the orthodox way is to condemn ourselves, accuse ourselves of hypocrisy, you know, and try to mercilessly persecute hypocrisy within ourselves and to constantly try to see the good in others. And when we have the opportunity to, first of all, um, you know, to get to know the other person if we have the time, if it's an appropriate relationship, um, or if there's something that they do, I've been telling people this a lot lately in confession too, especially. Some, if there's someone you really disagree with for some reason, but you're not in the position to call them out on it, to stand back in judgment of them and start resenting them as if they're beyond the pale of salvation or something is not going to help you. Um, what we need to do is be very kind, and, and at least think, okay, there's a reason, there's some re- some reason that they believe this, there's a reason they feel, they feel this way, or that they act this way, um, rather than standing in judgment over other people, if that makes sense. It's, a, it's a kind of a simple way, but it's compassionate. And then if and when God gives us the opportunity to actually speak, then, then it, it better be with um, a selfless kind of love and not a self-righteous semblance of love, a f- false kind of out of concern for you. We've all heard people say well I'm just I'm just concerned. but you know what our real concern is the person who someone who's really concerned is the one who will lay their life down for their friend, like Saint Paul i would I would go to hell so that you can go to heaven if I could. you know. so I, I wanted to give that comment because because there there is, in a way, some stuff that it's hard to take it seriously, but some people do take it seriously. So um, depending on what we're what level of conversation we're having, what we're commenting on or who we're talking to, We need to, um, you know, exercise a level of sensitivity in talking about those things. I don't know if that makes sense. But, um, okay. Where did I leave off? Oh, okay. So there will be a great revival, but it'll be the deception of the Antichrist. And those those who are ex- expecting to be delivered before the advent of the Antichrist will be ill-prepared to recognize him. Yeah, It's obvious that Satan himself is the author of the rapture myth. Okay, So our task as Orthodox Christians is not to try to predict the future, but to watch and pray. To just be, to be ready. That's the idea. We are to be as the wise virgins in the parable who had their lamps filled with oil in expectation of the bridegroom's call. We must be prepared. That's Matthew 25. We must be prepared for when the Lord appears, we shall stand before his throne of judgment and give an account of our lives. And the second major point that the church affirms about the second coming of Christ is that He's coming to render final judgment. And everyone who has ever lived will come before him. Romans two six through ten goes like this. I'm trying to bring it up on my there we go. So he says, he will render to each according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's another false teaching popular among evangelical Protestants that says that Christians will be exempt from this judgment. Do not be led astray by this kind of teaching. All of us will be called before Christ to give an account of our lives. That's why every liturgy we pray for a Christian ending to our life, painless, unashamed, peaceful, and for a good defense, before the dread judgment seat of Christ. And when Christ returns, the dead shall rise, the books shall be opened, and men shall be sent to their eternal destinies. The righteous shall reign together with Christ in his kingdom, a kingdom that shall have no end. This is the third point that the church affirms concerning the Christ's second coming, that his kingdom shall have no end. So in the early church, a heresy arose concerning the nature of Christ's kingdom. Misinterpreting the statement in Revelation, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, many began to teach that Christ would rule an earthly kingdom for 1,000 years before the final consummation of the age. And this is, this is um, heresies called Kiliasm. You want to impress your friends? <laughs> Kiliasm. Um, And it it comes from the the word heliasmos, which means um, a thousand, also called millennialism. And this teaching was condemned by the Second Ecumenical Council. So God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. The millennial reign of Christ um, is the seventh day. This is the age of the church. So the 1,000 years is not a 1,365-day years. It is understood as an image for a period of time, but not forever. 1,000 years is a long time, but it's not forever. So this is the age of the church. So we who have been united with Christ in baptism and anointed with the Holy Spirit live and reign with him here and now. The book of Revelation speaks of two deaths and two resurrections. The first death is our physical death. And the second death is the eternal death of hell. The first resurrection is our spiritual resurrection accomplished at baptism. When you burst forth from those waters, you know, like I, I love to say that the tomb of death becomes the womb of rebirth. That's what the water of, of uh, baptism is. So the second resurrection is the general resurrection of all of the dead. St. John, the theologian, writes in Revelation 20, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So those who experience the first resurrection will die physically, but they will be raised again to live in eternal life with God. Those however who have no part in the first resurrection will be raised again only to undergo the second death, which is hell and that begs the question of some people will ask me, well father, what if what if someone has never heard of Christ? you know have they just De facto, you know, in the mind of the church, somehow rejected him. They didn't have the, the opportunity to 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 experience this this first resurrection. So will they automatically be condemned? And we we don't pass judgment on that. There's no need to. Well, that's something we entrust completely entrust to God, and. When it comes to questions like that, rather than looking out and saying, "I wonder if that person in that tribe, whose language we don't speak, who has never heard they don't know who Christ is and they don 't have a Bible in their language yet or something you know will they go to heaven we we don't We don 't need to exercise judgment, but we always <laughs> we look at, in the mirror. <laughs> And say, will this, will this person get to heaven? Am I working out my salvation? And am I doing it by loving God and loving others? Proto Deacon emphasized that in his homily today by fulfilling those two commandments. One of my favorite things to say about heaven is um, that uh, one thing I'm sure you'll never hear in heaven is, oh, I didn't think that you would be here. That we won't be surprised. Oh, I thought you were going to be, be in hell. Could have fooled me, you know. Um, I, I doubt that we'll, because I think we will be surprised and in wonder over the fact that God loves us so much that he would even allow us to enter into eternal life with him. That reality can even begin to be experienced Now. Um, we, we can begin to experience what you might call the... Do you guys know the word eschatology? That end of all things? We can experience what we might call the eschatological present. <laughs> That's another good one.
1: <clears throat> eschatological. What <laughs> call...
0: Sorry about my writing. I need a whole wall with a whiteboard. <laughs> I would have a lot of fun with it. Eschatology, eschaton, is a word for the, the end, the end of all things, the that which is and will be, you know. Um, and uh, eschatology is the this the study of the end of things. So we can experience because because god has become man and we experience the worship of god joining with those who are in eternity with the saints and the angels for example in the liturgy the liturgy is the place par excellence where we experience the eschatological present and in the western theological world they would also call it realized eschatology if any of you ever heard that term it's kind of another cool term realized eschatology um so, so we live here in the seventh day. But when Christ returns, a new day will dawn. Not the first day of a new cycle, but the eighth and final day, the day that knows no end. Creation as we know it will be transformed and all will be transfigured by the power of Christ's resurrection and the divine life of the all-holy trinity. So there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And according to Revelation 21, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes for the former things are passed away. You know, we, we look forward to that, but also it's it's with a sense of, of fear that we anticipate the judgment. Um, and uh, because... Because that final and dread day of judgment will be a day in which some some people will choose to be separated from God, and uh, that's 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 always um, tragic and sorrowful. We have to believe because we believe in free will. In the Church, we are we're not universalists at all. Uh, just just to put that out there, that, that heresy was condemned because that would be another kind of electionism if God, God automatically created everyone um, predestined to be saved. Now, we, we believe that everyone has the freedom to be in eternity with him, but we also believe if they have the freedom to choose to be in eternity with him, they also have the freedom to choose not to be in eternity, you know, spend all of eternity with him, which is... Uh, hell and we we believe in that we believe in free will we we believe that every person every rational being every creature made in the image of god will have the opportunity to to choose to make that absolute decision you know and i'm not saying that It's going to happen. I think it's happening in our lives right now based on how we live. We are making that choice. But for those who have never heard the name of Jesus, they'll have the chance to face the truth and of their own complete, total free will to accept the truth as they've known it. And the early chapters of Genesis, not Genesis, Romans talk about that. Creation becomes a law unto itself for those who have not heard the name of Christ. And... um, so, because God has created us with a, with a conscience, with, with this, his, the very seed of his image within us. St. Justin Martyr talks about that a lot. Okay, so it's 151.
1: I have one question, Father. Yeah. Um, the, thousand, the whole thing about thousand years, I think in Revelation it mentioned something about the, the Satan being found and then being let loose again. How does the Orthodox Church... Look at that! Is that did something happen at the cross where mm-hmm. there's there's a binding? And but then how does then the evil in the world tar- currently today? How does that? Yep. Affect? Yeah,
0: yeah, and I I know what you're talking about, and being being bound means that that he doesn't he doesn't reign anymore. I mean, he doesn't reign because he's been bound by Christ, who when he entered into Hades and overcome the the brazen gates of of hell smash those gates but it's not an absolute and final binding um and uh but it would be interesting to look that up and maybe we could pull saint andrew's commentary and see what he says now i mentioned dr jeannie Constantino, and i saw you nod your head have you listened to her a little bit she's really great you know she's a great teacher she teaches biblical studies at a college a private college in California but she's been doing podcasts basically the I mean she's she's a patristics a biblical and patristics scholar and she's been giving university level quality teachings through her podcast and not every podcast is worth listening to like someone once told me if I want to hear everyone's opinion I can just go down and hang out in coffee hour after church and that's how it feels like with 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 all the podcasts out there these days. It's true, you know. I mean, but she's there are some who are actually who are worth listening to, and she's one of them. She's she's a, a good teacher, especially if you want to go deeper in your understanding of the scriptures. She puts out a lot of content though, so it's hard to keep up, you know, sometimes. But um, but she did the Book of Revelation too, The whole series from beginning to end on the Book of Revelation. Um, she did the whole Old Testament, and she did several sessions. Oh yeah, I could look her up. She probably gave a teaching on the, the origin of the scripture too, so that would be something that I that we could find. And the uh,
1: origin of scripture.
0: Yeah, the origin of the Bible, the formation of the scripture, the, you know the New Testament, the Old Testament, and New Testament canons. She did some really some really nice teaching on that. So, um, and she goes deep. Yeah, her name is um, Dr. G. Jean? G- right? G- I know her. Oh, no, I don't know how to spell it. Her first name is Constantine. Uh, and it's called Search the Scriptures. Her podcast is uh, Search the Scriptures. It's on ancient faith.com. And uh, Okay. Jeannie, I. I don't know. Oh OK, you looked her up. Thank you. Okay, we were going to talk about heaven and hell, but we don't have time today. Um, have you guys read or studied at all about the Orthodox view of heaven and hell? I know you have. Have you at all, RuPaul? No? Okay. I'm gonna show you something. You one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. What about eight people? Um just in case it's just in Okay, so Father James, the, my predecessor, wrote, if you've read this book, you've, you've read some about this, but he also did a little booklet for, uh, now they're called ancient faith press, They used to be conciliar press, but heaven and hell, the fire of God's divine love. So I'm going to give you an assignment, okay, to take this um, Do you guys have yeah. You want Okay. So take that, yeah, take that. And do you guys have any copies? Do you each want one? We, prob- we probably have it, but
1: okay. we can return it. Do you guys each want your own
0: copy, or do you just take one? Father yeah. James. Yeah, okay. Nice. So Father James Bernstein. Yeah, and I... Mm, I don't no. I don't think I put it on my website. You know, he gave me all of his writings and things, and I published one of them. But I think, I think I published which came first, the Church of the New Testament, uh, which is a good, a pretty provocative good, good it's on, one. It's on your
1: website.
0: Yeah, which came first, the Church of okay. the New Testament? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so for those who are listening, if you're listening back on the recording. Father James just wrote this little booklet called Heaven and Hell, the Fire of God's Divine Love. And I'm assigning everyone to to find that um, or to take this little booklet and read it. Um, And then what we can do when we come back together next week is we can talk about that a little bit. Okay, what you um, have learned, if you have questions. And if you want to send me any questions in advance of the session next week, we can address your questions. I can be prepared to answer them. And then, I think we're going to conclude, I think we will get into this last chapter, living an orthodox life in a secular world. Um, next, next time. And that will wrap up this, this cycle of catechesis. But then uh, the following week, we'll go back to the beginning. Of the of the cycle and start for those of, for those who didn't get the early sessions, we'll go back to the foundations of our of our faith, what we believe about God, the Holy Trinity, who Christ is, and things like that. So um, that'll be that'll be exciting. Okay, so let's end there for today
1: with a short prayer.
0: Actually, let's sing the troparian for the cross. Yeah. We'll sing the Troparion for the cross three times. Do your best.
1: O Lord, save thy people and bless Thy inheritance, Granting to thy people victory over all their enemies, And by the power of thy cross, Preserving thy habitation. O Lord, save Thy people and bless Thy inheritance, granting to Thy people victory over all their enemies, and by the power of Thy cross, preserving Thy habitation. O Lord, save Thy people and bless Thy inheritance, granting to Thy people victory over all their enemies, and by the power of Thy cross, preserve Thy habitation. Okay, God
0: bless you all. Go in peace.